But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. There, uh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading in verse 15 through 33. Look carefully then how you walk, not as an unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for those debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself a savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, so that he might present to the church himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respect her husband. You may be seated. Good morning. Excited to uh, share this morning again from God's Word on a subject matter that I believe uh, impacts and connects to uh, every one of us here. Not just those who are married, but those who, uh, Lord willing, one day will be uh, married. I think there's a, a good word here uh, for us this morning. Before we jump in, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful once again for another day. We thank you, Lord, for the breath of life. And Lord, this morning we ask that you would take your word and plant it deep within us. Sharpen us for your glory and honor as we take your word in. Give us a heart to work on our marriages, Lord. You are the giver of life, the giver of marriage, and we thank you for this gift. Marriage has come under attack, Lord. I know this is no surprise to you. We've neglected the parameters and the definitions that you've set forth in your word. And Lord, in our day we are reaping the consequences of disobedience. Yet, Lord, our hope is in you. and We look to you, our strength. We trust in the name of the Lord. We rejoice in your goodness. 
And Father, I ask that you would give us eyes to see your plan for marriage. Give us hearts to engage in our marriages as you've called us to. Where our lives need adjusting, Lord, I pray that you would move us to make the necessary adjustments. Move us where you want us to be. Father, remind us that marriage is intended to shine light upon you, upon your son, upon your church. Marriage is a receptacle for the gospel to flourish. Marriage is good, for you created it, Lord. And you are good. All the time, Lord, you are good. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. A quote by a couple that was used in uh, Gary Thomas's book on sacred marriage. I thought this would be a, an interesting way to begin our time this morning as it speaks to marriage. This couple writes, one of the best wedding gifts God gave you was a full-length mirror called your spouse. Had there been a card attached to it, it would have said, here's to helping you discover what you're really like. It's already been mentioned this morning, the phrase, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Till death do us part. These are familiar words to many of us here who are married. Vows, promises, words spoken, declaring your intentions in this marriage relationship. And as you stand before your husband or wife on that wedding day, you are making a proclamation to your spouse and to God that you are in this for life. A vow is a promise. You are promising to stay by her, men. All the way to the end. You're promising women to remain by his side to the finish line of life. Why would you make vows and promises you have no intention to keep? You might hear some say, well, I, I had plans to stay together when I said I do, but he, oh, I'd hoped this would work out when I said I do, but she, I had visions, I had dreams of, of having a family and children and grandchildren when I said I do, but he, and you can fill in the blank of excuses that comes on the end of those statements. Marriage is hard work. Amen? No amens. Marriage is hard work. I'm going to say it. Amen. It's hard. It's hard. It's glorious. But it's hard. Someone was saying this week as I was reading, marriage is one of the greatest tests in our life. It's hard. 
Marriage, you know, is also in trouble today. You've heard all the statistics. I'm not going to cite the statistics. You're well aware that Christian marriages typically don't look a whole lot better than worldly marriages. How is it that approximately 50% of Christian marriages, give or take, don't make it? Roughly half of those in Christ end up in divorce? How does that happen? And by the way, statistics go up greatly for those children of divorced parents. We're in great need of resurrected marriages today. That's what we're talking about in this series is resurrected. We began by looking at the person we need to look at to begin. And that is Jesus. We talked about resurrected Jesus. Jesus makes resurrected living possible. And we've talked about resurrected churches. And we've talked about resurrected workplaces. And today we come to resurrected Marriages, and oh, we are in great need of resurrected marriages. I stand before you today, not as one who has conquered and arrived and climbed the peak, if you will, of marriage and has it all figured out. I'm just a lot like you, folks. I'm imperfect, just like you, men. But I'll tell you what, as I read God's word... I come to find that there are a lot of things that, yes, I'm not doing, haven't been doing, need to be doing. It really comes down in many ways to being the man of God and ladies, being the woman of God he's called you to be. There's going to be some things in here we'll talk about that, that really have the connotation of doing. And doing is needful, but being is so much more needful. Being, who we are. In Christ. You know, I believe that somehow we've bought the lie that marriage travels this exclusive path of righteousness in self-propelling fashion. Have you ever, ever have a, a, a mower that's a self-propelled mower? We used to have one until the self-propelled broke. You may have been there too. Yours has probably done that at, at some point. It's actually a blessing in disguise. But you know what I'm talking about. You, you, you pull that lever on the mower and those front wheels just start going. And all you got to do is walk. It's pretty nice. The purpose of the self-propelling action is to make it easier, I suppose, to cut your grass. But what about marriage? Do you treat your marriage like you would this self-propelling mower? Do you think for a moment that marriage is some walk in the park. This is easy. Oh, I like this. This is easy. It's just going all, all, all by itself. This is easy. Are you quick to look for the easier alternative in marriage? Some of us might have this idea that, oh, self-propelled sounds like less strain. <laughs> if marriage is hard work, why do you tend to remove yourself from the hard work that's required of marriage? The Bible teaches, going back to the promises we mentioned a moment ago, a promise means something. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5 tells us something about a vow. 
When you make a vow to God, and some of you are immediately saying, well, I made a vow to my spouse. Listen, when you come before your spouse in that wedding ceremony, you are coming before God Almighty. This is his institution. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. I didn't call you one. The Bible says that's what you are if you have no intention to pay your vow, to keep your promise. Pay what you vowed, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, writes these words in a chapter that's titled Christian Marriage. He says, the promise made when I am in love and because I am in love to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits one to being true even if I cease to be what he calls in love. He's contrasting this idea of being in love versus this strong, solid, what we would refer to as agape, unconditional love. The promise commits one to being true, even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be about things that I can do, about actions. This is important. No one can promise to go on feeling a certain way. Lewis says he might as well promise never to have a headache or always to be hungry. He continues, and he's speaking to the folly of being hooked on feelings in the marriage relationship. He says, no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go, he writes. And in fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever could be true. He says, ceasing to be in love does not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense, he writes, love is distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. Listen, it's a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit. He says they can have this love for each other at those moments when they do not like each other. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love, or what we would call biblically, this agape love, this unconditional love, enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion, he says, that started it. Being in love is, is much different than the ongoing agape unconditional love that's called for in a biblical marriage relationship. When we confuse being in love with this covenant-keeping love, we set ourselves up, friends, for failure. We set our course for something other than what God intends for marriage. What ends up happening is we prioritize feelings, which, by the way, change and fluctuate, just like the chaff that the wind blows away. We prioritize these feelings over and above the biblical love that's called for. Or worse yet, 
We replace biblical love with a feelings-only oriented love. Feelings-only. I appreciate the definition that was given in a message by Vody Balkum years ago. It's always stuck with me, though, this definition of biblical love. Biblical love, an act of the will, accompanied by emotion, not void of emotion, not led by emotion, accompanied by emotion, which leads to action on behalf of its object. It's an act of the will. In other words, you are choosing to love. You're choosing to love. You know, some people, when they look at the Genesis 2 account, and they see that God had established and set up these trees, these specific trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, some people like to ask the question, why did God do that? Why did he set Adam and Eve up to fail? I don't believe for a moment he set them up to fail. I believe that he had one tree that he specifically said not to eat from for this reason. It was going to be a daily test of their love for God. Every day they got up and they went to the garden and they saw that tree. They needed to choose. Are they going to obey what God has said about this tree? Or are they going to disobey? Are they going to love God more than what someone else? And we see in Genesis 3, this serpent comes into the picture. Whose word are we going to listen to? An act of the will. You're choosing to love the other. Accompanied by emotion. Feelings are a part of this. God has given to us feelings. Those are from God. Your love toward your spouse is accompanied by emotion. Men, don't buy the lie that you're just not an emotional type of person. In fact, men, I would test you on this one. If you have a particular favorite hobby that you enjoy... I don't believe it would take too long before your emotions would start coming out in that hobby at some level. Ladies, I think it's important, and and ladies, you probably heard this, whether it's true, I'm not going to be the one to say this is true or not. It's been spoken. That maybe, perhaps, you are the more emotional human being than your counterpart. Whether that's a fact or true or not, doesn't dismiss the need to handle your emotions carefully. You see, because the definition is you don't lead with emotions. You don't move forward hooked on just your feelings. The biblical love leads to action on behalf of its object. You know, words are great, men. I love you, honey. Words are great. Saying I love you is wonderful, but taking actions that accompany the I love you. Remember, we serve a God whose son loved us. Amen, he loved us. He had no reason to love us. We were pretty unlovely. But he didn't just say, I love you. He laid down his life for us. Men, it's not just I love you. But are there actions that accompany the I love you? When we say we love our spouse and fail to take action toward our spouse, that reflects our stated love and confusion begins to set in. Problems arise, tension builds, relationship takes a hit. See, biblical love is rooted in God's love toward us. 
For God so loved the world, right? And he gave. But he loved, he so loved that he gave. Paul has that wonderful passage in Corinthians 13. One of the things we see there about this love of God is it's a love that never fails. Love that never fails. We love, the Bible says, because he first loved us. By this we know love. How is it that we know love? The Bible says in 1 John 3, 16, because he laid down his life for us. Let's not forget that love is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first one? Love. The fruit of the Spirit. First one's love. For those in Christ, it's important to know that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Romans 5, verse 5. So the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That means love, listen, that means love, as God intends for us to love, is distributed by His Spirit. No Holy Spirit, no biblical love. Does this, in part, explain the trouble that marriage is in today? <laughs> How many people are getting married without a relationship to God through Jesus Christ? No relationship with the Lord. No Holy Spirit flowing through you. No Holy Spirit working in you. No biblical love flowing from husband to wife. Oh, they may do good deeds one to another. But they have not the love that scripture is speaking of here. Marriage is already hard work. And we make it harder, friends, when we choose marriage on our own terms, apart from Christ. Marriage requires love. It requires biblical love. Not the feelings only kind of love. For a marriage to go the distance, it requires more than self-propelled action. Some have foolishly held the wedding ceremony to be the self-propelling action that's needed to make the marriage work. I'm married, I signed the papers, we're off. Here we go. Perhaps that's another problem today in our marriages that we've given more weight to the glamour of a short-term wedding than tending to a lifetime of a marriage. We spend lots and lots of time and money and details on the wedding day very little time, perhaps, on cultivating a godly marriage. Or maybe we've seen the marriage more as a contract than a covenant. That's a pretty big deal today. You know what a contract is. You're signing a contract. And the idea and the basis of the contract is that you are saying that you'll, you'll be in this as long as you keep getting what you want out of this. And at the point in time, you don't get any longer what you're wanting to get. Well, that contract, you, you just end the contract. That's not, by the way, the kind of marriage that God has designed and set up. When something goes south, when problems pile up, trials enter the mix that disrupt or disturb your routines... One might actually start to believe that this other person really isn't the right one. And that's the big craze today. And you hear it. It's all around us. It's hard to escape this. This whole idea of 
If I just found the right one, if I, if I just find that one, then my life's going to be wonderful. Craig and Amy Grishel in their book, From This Day Forward, they talk about this whole fantastical pursuit of finding the one. They said all you have to do is to be, to be genuinely fulfilled is to find the one. And once you do, everything will be rainbows and hearts and flowers and love songs from then on. How many of you agree with that one? No, he goes on. And he asks another question which targets the heart. Why does the one never seem to really be the one we're looking for? His response is this. I'm convinced there's a simple reason. And while it's true that you do need to find that one to be truly complete, and he's thinking there of the completion that God had in mind in Genesis 2, that suitable helper. He says another person can never be the one. He said just, just once. I would love to hear somebody say, I just met someone awesome and godly. You know, I think I might have just met the two. Why the two? Because to be really fulfilled in life, you do have to meet the one. I'll capitalize O-N-E. He says, here's the catch. God is your one. Your spouse is your two. God is your one. Your spouse is your two. Matthew chapter 22 Jesus is being tested by the religious leaders of the day. Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love your spouse. Does he say that? No. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And the second is like it, love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God is your one, your spouse is your two. He goes on and shares two commitments, and these are two commitments that I'd like to share with you today because I think they'll be helpful for you just as they were for me in strengthening your marriage, resurrecting marriages that need to be resurrected today. Here's commitment number one. Commitment number one is to those who are not yet married. How many are not yet married here today? Raise your hand if you're not yet married. All right, this applies to a lot of you. So if you haven't listened up to this point, this is a good time to listen. Listen to this. This is really good. This will be helpful for you. Commitment number one. You might want to write this down if you take notes. I will seek the one, capital O. I will seek the one while I prepare for my two. I will seek the one. That would be the Lord Jesus. That would be God through Christ. I will seek him while I prepare for my two. Seek God, seek his kingdom first, Matthew 6, right? And he will provide, he will take care of your needs. Trust him for your spouse. Don't run ahead of him. Wait upon the Lord in this. Here's commitment number two, and this is for those who are already married. So how many of you are married in here? Okay, good. So again, if you're writing this down, this may be something helpful for you. I will always seek the one with my two. I will always seek the one with my two. 
what happens when you get your spouse ahead of God, friends. When your two is in the position of the rightful one. You can place undue expectations on your spouse. You may very well end up committing idolatry. What's idolatry? An idol is anything or anyone that takes the place, substitutes for God. Are you looking to your spouse to meet all of your needs? If so, you're going to get disappointed. I would venture to say that you've already been disappointed. If you're married, you've already experienced disappointment from your spouse on a few occasions, if not a lot of occasions. Listen, your spouse isn't God. Nor can he or she fix your deepest needs. Look to the Lord, fix your eyes on the Lord individually and collectively, and then make a commitment together. I will always seek the one with my two. You want to resurrect your marriage? Seek the Lord, husbands. Seek the Lord, wives. Seek the Lord together. You were made for this purpose, friends. Look at how you were created. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created male and female. And then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Listen, you were created in God's image. Whether male or female, you were made in his image. That our image, our likeness. There's a Trinitarian connection that's being made here. Trinitarian is a long word. It simply represents God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Try three. Three persons, one God, right? You read the scriptures and you see how connected God is with his Son. You see his role in the sending of the Holy Spirit. You see the Son. You see Jesus. And you see how committed he is to carrying out the work of his Father. His fellowship with the Father. His praying to the Father. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Holy Spirit. And he seems to know every little detail about the Spirit who's yet to come. And then you see the Holy Spirit who arrives and he comes down in Acts chapter 2. He's poured out by God through the Son. The Holy Spirit is never speaking on his own accord. He's always tuned in to the truth of Jesus. Do you see how they're connected? This Trinitarian connection is significant because you see, we were created to operate fully dependent on God. We're here to give God glory and to enjoy Him and as being created in the image of God, we are intended to rely fully on God. Herein lies another part of the problem in our marriages. We see evidence of this as early as Genesis 2, when Adam sins, and excuse me, in Genesis 3, when he sins against God and Eve is deceived by the Spirit. 
And right at the beginning, the first thing that comes out in Genesis 3, 1 by the serpent, has God indeed said? Those are the first words. Questioning the word and the reliability of God, he brings to light whether God is dependable. He goes on to accuse God of lying. You'll not surely die. He takes it a step further. By attesting false motives to God's word. God doesn't want you to be like him. God wants to keep all the power to himself. Marriage is in trouble and and the short answer to the trouble is sin, friends. We, We stop listening to God. We've ignored his word. We've turned aside everyone to his own way. We've forsaken the one who made us. He's no longer our one. We've profaned marriage because we've become a people who by and large have said to God, we can do this on our own. We'll take it from here, God. Thank you. You know, things looked so good for that first couple, didn't it? Back in Genesis 2. When you read the end of Genesis chapter 2, things could not have been better. Perfect. God himself is officiating this first wedding. He's the one who brings that woman to the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, verse 24, chapter 2, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Just seven verses later, friends, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Husband and wife, listen, went from fellowship with God in the garden to hiding from God in the garden. They went from naked and unashamed to naked and eyes wide open. They went from no need for fig leaves to I need to hide from God. And you know, we tend to think of Genesis 1 and 2 as the creation account, and it is. We tend to think of Genesis 3 as the the, the fall of man, and it is. But as I've studied the word this week, I've come to see these first three chapters in a different light. I'm seeing my marriage in the context of creation. I'm seeing my marriage in the context of what it is to be made in the likeness of God. I'm seeing my marriage in the context of God's purpose for marriage. I'm seeing my marriage in the context of man's sin. Listen, we can't escape this. Right at the end of Genesis 2, we see the institution of marriage. Right at the beginning of 3, we see sin come into the picture. Sin comes into the picture, into the context of this marriage relationship. It's hard to extract them and pull them apart. They're intricately connected. Seeing my marriage in the context of hope. That God has done something already about my sin. God's done something already about my spouse's sin. I'm seeing my marriage in the context of eternity. That's why I love the title of Piper's book on marriage. This momentary marriage. It's true. It's a momentary marriage. It's a glorious, wonderful relationship that we have here for a time And yet it's momentary. The 
The reason I spend good time in Genesis here is because this is the original pattern of marriage. This is where it all began. A garden marriage. It's where it began. And you read Matthew chapter 19, you read Mark chapter 10, and you see that Jesus is being tested in both of those passages. The subject is marriage and divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they're trying to get Jesus to argue or disagree with Moses. See, because Moses permitted divorce, that a man could just simply write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. And Jesus tells them, That Moses permitted divorce, but only because of the hardness of their hearts. You see, Jesus is saying it was permitted because of men's hearts. And he's quick to turn their attention back to Genesis. Matthew 19, verse 8, Jesus says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, where does that take us? Genesis 2. Genesis 2. Paul in Ephesians 5 speaks of marriage and actually quotes from Genesis 2, verse 24. In in Ephesians 5, 31. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is turning our attention back to the beginning, back to the pattern. Revelation 19 makes reference to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21, 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. You see, this marriage imagery doesn't go away as you keep reading through the Bible. The fact that marriage remains a constant thread through the scriptures should tell us something significant about God. He doesn't hold marriage lightly. He created it. He ordained it. He set it in motion. He saw it, in fact, before sin came on the scene. Some of you might be saying, yeah, but... Things are different now. Sin has made a mess of things. And that's true. Sin has a demolishing effect. It specializes in stealing, killing, destroying. You might recognize those descriptors. These are characteristic of the father of lies in John chapter 8. This is the one in whom there is no truth. But lest you think that this is all the devil's fault, I want you to know something this morning from God's word, that sin, according to the scriptures, comes from your own desires within you. That's James chapter 1, verse 14. Sin comes from your own desires within you. You bring two sinful parties together in marriage, and what happens? If you go by the numbers... The two that have become one, they go their separate ways. They call it quits about half the time. They've ignored God's plan for marriage, or they're just simply ignorant of God's plan for marriage. Either way, the result is the same. Divorce. Selfishness and pride, you might write those down. Talk about some different troubles and problem spots in marriages. These are two wonderful schemes of the evil one. If he can get two parties in marriage thinking about themselves, thinking about their wants, their happiness, their disappointments, their independence from God and spouse, if he can turn their eyes off of God, keep feeding their own appetites, 
He can wreak havoc in a marriage relationship. Let's not be fooled also into thinking that the evil one only succeeds when he gets a legal divorce to occur. This may be one of his greatest ploys in marriage today. If he can't destroy the marriage itself through a legal divorce, he can still create a mess of your marriage. He can still make it look to the watching world and to those even in your own household that your marriage is dead. We're talking about resurrected marriages. A dead marriage isn't just one that ends in divorce, friends. I would liken this to, at a bigger picture, perhaps, thinking about the schemes of the evil one in regard to trying to keep you from being a follower of Jesus. Some he's succeeded with and they've been blinded, for sure, by the evil one. There are others, though, here who have made a profession that Christ is Lord of my life. And one of his greatest schemes, one of his greatest ploys is to take one who claims the name of Jesus and see that his life looks anything like the life of a follower of Jesus. Because you see, that really, in many regards, profanes the name of God in a greater way than one who has just coldly said, no, I'm not going to follow him. It's the one who has said yes already, and now he's using this one who proclaims Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. It's the same way in marriage. If he can't get divorce, which delights him, then he's going to do his best to see that you are not living out the roles and functions that you're intended to live out as a husband, that you're intended to live out as a wife. He's going to distract you. Isn't that what Paul writes about? That's like the big idea in, in Corinthians 7 as he speaks about marriage. The bottom line in Corinthians 7 is, don't get distracted from serving the Lord. Don't even allow your marriage to distract you from serving the Lord. That's why it's so important. I believe I love that. That we're always going to look to our one with our two. We're, we're going we're to encourage our two. And as we encourage them and they encourage us, we're going to keep looking to our one. We're going to keep looking there. We're going to keep going there. We're not going to get sidetracked. We're not going to get distracted. As we talk about all of this, I believe there are some perhaps here this morning that may be experiencing a dead marriage. Dead in what regard? Let me give you a few ideas of what a dead marriage might look like. A dead marriage is one that's lacking life. Lacking any sense of the Holy Spirit. Absent of joy. Does that describe your marriage? A dead marriage can be identified by looking at the track that you're on right now. If, if things keep moving in this direction, dead is the long-term result. It's sort of like a trajectory watch. Is the trajectory of your marriage heading down a dead-end road? Is it empty? 
A dead-end marriage might be one that's withholding love. You sense no love being shown. You sense no love being extended. Maybe only one spouse is giving love. No reciprocity. There's no return in this relationship that you sense. Has the love of one or both spouses in your marriage relationship grown cold? A dead marriage might be one absent of growth. And a live marriage, friends, is growing, maturing, thriving. Hey, I'm not about just existing. Just making it to the finish line. You ever see a marathon? And, and I'm not knocking these folks. If you run 26 miles, that's a lot of miles. But there are some who, who, who just, they're just they're glad to be there. And I, I ask myself as we think about marriage, are you just glad to be there? Are you just, is, are you just there? Or do you really desire for this marriage that God's placed you in to grow, to thrive, to mature? Some of us have been married a long time and we haven't matured a whole lot either individually or collectively as a married couple. In that sense, perhaps your marriage is dead. Listen, you put no work into your marriage, don't be surprised at the results. It's it's what the Bible says in Galatians 6, a reaping and sowing principle. You sow nothing into the marriage, don't expect it to be godly. Godliness doesn't come automatically. There's no self-propelling godliness function in a marriage relationship. Doesn't work that way. It's called training. Hard work is involved. And listen, the evil one can sow seeds of discord in your marriage without a divorce certificate. Did you know that? He doesn't have to have a divorce certificate to sow seeds of discord in your marriage relationship. Know his schemes. Put on the whole armor of God so you can take your stand against his schemes. Know that anything that bears the name of God and marriage, friends, is one of his institutions. Amen? It's one of his institutions. Anything that bears his name, the evil one is going to try to destroy. By the look of things around us, he's successful a large amount of times. Whether through a legal divorce or simply doing his best to see that you have a dead marriage. Either way, the enemy wins. I'm tired of the enemy winning. I believe the Lord's tired of the enemy winning. Oh, yes, he wins in the end, the Lord. But in the meantime, what are we doing? You see, he, the evil one, is all about disturbing, disrupting, devouring the marriage that God has designed for you and your wife, men. And he's serious about attacking Are you as serious about guarding, nurturing, and strengthening your marriage? Marriage is in trouble. 
and it's in trouble due to sin. And I'd like to just break that down for, for, for a moment. When, when problems surface in a marriage relationship, they oftentimes take the shape, I mentioned this earlier, of selfishness and pride. Selfishness and pride. Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says the Christian principle that needs to be at work in a marriage relationship, he's talking. The Christian principle that needs to be at work is spirit-generated selflessness. Not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. He goes on. He says, we come into our marriages driven by all kinds of fears, desires, and needs. If I look to my marriage to fill the God-sized spiritual vacuum in my heart... I will not be in position to serve my spouse. Only God can fill a God-sized hole. Until God has the proper place in my life, I will always be complaining that my spouse is not loving me well enough, not respecting me enough, not supporting me enough. Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says, Whoever wants to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Keller goes on about this verse, and he says that Jesus is saying here, If you seek happiness more than you seek me, you'll have neither. If you seek to serve me more than serve happiness, you will have both. Because it's in him we find our true delight. In the Lord. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.15. And Jesus died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Did you hear that? Jesus died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and was raised again. This is true that marriage is in trouble, but I would like to submit this morning. Marriage is not without hope. And for that, I'm grateful. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And with the gospel, friends, there is hope. Sin has entered the picture and permeated this marriage relationship. But Jesus, praise God, Jesus has provided a solution to our sin problem. I want you to hear this before we end. There's hope for your marriage. I don't know where all of your marriages are at this morning. As I look around the room, I'm sure they're at different places on the spectrum in terms of with the Lord uh, or maybe closer to some of the things we talked about in terms of a dead marriage. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. I don't know where things are at with you and your spouse. I do want to say there's hope for your marriage wherever it may be. The God of heaven is in the business of resurrecting marriages. From this day forward. You know, a lot of times in the marriage relationship, you might hear that phrase, from this day forward. From this day forward. Well, friends, from this day forward, 
you can start working on your marriage. From this day forward, you can start making investments in a godly marriage. From this day forward, you can commit to not looking backward. From this day forward, we're not rehashing old habits, old arguments, old patterns. From this day forward, we're not holding on to hurtful tendencies. From this day forward, we're not wallowing in painful pasts. From this day forward, we're not allowing the root of bitterness to divide our marriage. From this day forward, we're going to have short accounts with one another. From this day forward, we're going to be quick to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. From this day forward, we're going to see that we are first in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're going we're gonna to be clear on this. We're going to be certain of this. That we are in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ in this marriage. There might be some uncomfortable conversations that happen in the midst of that context. But I'm telling you, it'll be worth every ounce of effort you make to do this. From this day forward, we're always going to seek the one with our two. From this day forward, we're going to pray together. We're not just going to pray for her, men. We're going to pray together. We've got something to say to God for her, on her behalf. We're going to pray with her. Women, we're going to pray with him. This isn't just something that men do, women. I want to encourage you in this. Pray together to the God of heaven. We're going to, from this day forward, walk in the light together. We're going to walk in the light together. We're not going to walk in darkness. And when one is walking in darkness, we're going to gently but lovingly speak the truth. And we're going to see that we're walking in the light together as he is in the light. If we're going to have fellowship with him, we've got to be walking in the light. From this day forward, we're going to enjoy one another. We're going to enjoy one another. Too many marriages speaks to the deadness in some marriages. There's no enjoyment of your spouse. How are you enjoying your spouse these days? From this day forward, we're going to look for ways to serve one another. Men, high bar. By the way, in the scripture, when Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 is writing... There are actually some women who believe this. I've heard this, and you may have heard this too, ladies. That the men got off easy. The women are are to submit and respect their husbands. The the, the guys are just called to, to love and lead. We got off easy. Really. We probably don't have a right understanding then of Ephesians 5. Because the understanding I have as I read Ephesians 5 is that men are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That means 
sacrifice. That means laying down my life, serving in a sacrificial way that cost me my life. That's a pretty high bar. And I'm not comparing one or the other. I'm saying both are significant. The husband and the wife are both called to this. That's why it begins, this whole passage in Ephesians 5 begins with submit to one another in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord. We submit to one another in the fear of the Lord in our relationships in general. From this day forward, we're going to steward well the picture of Christ and his love for the church. Husbands, we're going to lead and love well. Wives, we're going to practice submission that's called for and we're going to learn to respect him well. I didn't make those up. Those are right there in Ephesians 5. We're going to do that well. This is what he calls us to be. This is how he calls us to function in our marriage relationship together. Remember that all of your doing as a spouse is, be, is rooted in your being, who you are, right? Who you are. That's why it's so important we have God. We have the spirit of Christ in us so that we can properly love one another as the Bible has called us to love. The things that are called for in marriage are Holy Spirit generated. That's how we can arrive at the greatest of these, right? The greatest of these is what? Love. It's from God. It's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Return to the word of God and capture the spirit of marriage as God designed it. He brings the woman to the man and together they become one flesh, one for a lifetime, one for his honor, one for his glory. Marriage may very well be in trouble according to the numbers. The nation perhaps has tweaked some terms, tweaked some definitions to suit its own changing needs. But marriage is still one woman brought to one man A man leaving his father and mother and cleaving, that word has in mind, sticking like glue. Men, that's what we're to be about. We're sticking like glue to our wife. We're not going anywhere. Wives, we're not going anywhere. We're becoming one flesh. One flesh, by the way, is much more than a sexual relationship. Side note. A marriage is the context for procreation. Be fruitful and multiply. Sits within the context of a marriage relationship. God has designed it. What God has joined together, let man not separate. And the whole premise of this series that we're in right now is predicated on what Jesus did. Let's never forget this. The whole premise of the series, it's all predicated on what Jesus did. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins once for all. Jesus was buried in a tomb. And Jesus, according to the scriptures on the third day, was raised from that tomb. And he walked in newness of life. Jesus makes possible resurrected living and it's the same Jesus who makes possible resurrected marriages amen same Jesus let's pray
Father, our hope is in you. We look around us today and we see, it's pretty easy to see, Lord, uh, the state of marriage today. The low view of marriage that people have today. Even those who are professing the name of Jesus. How we have profaned your name in the context of your institution called marriage. Lord, forgive us for sinning in this way. We lay these things, Lord, at your feet. We pray, Lord, that we would look to you each day. That those of us who are married would always look to you, our one, and we would do that with our two. For those who are here and are not yet married, that they would seek to always look to their one and understand perhaps anew who their one is. The right one that they need is you, God, in a relationship with your son, Jesus. And while they're seeking you, I pray then that these young people would prepare themselves for their two down the road as you would lead and enable them to be married. We thank you for the hope that you've given to us in our marriages through your son, Jesus Christ. Without him, our marriage would be much like many in the world today, without hope, without the Lord, without any recognition of what the Bible speaks of here regarding this institution of yours. I thank you, Lord, that you've created to us and given, given to us this institution of marriage. It's a gift. May we steward the gift well. I pray for the men in this place that each one of the men would love their wives as Christ loved the church. And I pray for the, the, the wives that they would submit themselves to their husbands as unto the Lord and that they would respect their husbands and that this relationship that they carry out in their days here on earth would be witnessed by others who would see the love of Christ being poured out in this relationship in such a way People are drawn to you, Lord. May our marriages paint a picture of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that the marriages here in this place would please you. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.